Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Turn to the book of Matthew, the sixth chapter. Matthew, the sixth chapter. I'm going to read 9 through 15. But let me just give you the context. So often we read a a famous text like what we call the Lord's Prayer. It really should be called the Apostles' Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer. But we call it the Lord's Prayer. And we read a famous text like that. And we lose track of the context. He is, Jesus is teaching on the Lord's Prayer following a talk about the discernment or the difference between public and private spiritual life. The contrast between what people see and what the reality is. And then he goes into this teaching on prayer. We'll begin there. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For the whole thing, therefore, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Put your hand on your word and let's pray. Padre bendito celestial, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta noche. Gracias por tu gracia. Más que suficiente. Y por tu amor precioso. Gracias. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and your love your mercy, which is fresh every morning. And I pray now that in this evening, you will brush aside every barrier to divine communication. Lord, I pray for those who are watching and joining us through the internet, the thousands scattered worldwide. I pray that right now in every room, hotel room, house, dwelling with where they're watching, Lord, I pray that you will invade them with your presence and with your power. And to every person in this room, God, I thank you. And those who will ever hear this message, May you sweep aside all of our carefully constructed mechanisms of self-defense and speak to us by your might in the inner person of every listener. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God, amen. Amen and amen. One of the great paradoxes of boxing is that it is and has been for a couple of hundred years referred to as the sweet science. Now, that is a very strange thing. Why would such a brutal personal combat be called the sweet science? It goes all the way back to the early 1800s. A British writer, a sports writer named Pierce Egan wrote five volumes on boxing. I cannot imagine a more tedious reading than five volume series on boxing. But in it, he referred to boxing as the sweet science of bruising. A sports writer, it it, it laid sort of fallow on the ground for years, but a sports writer for the New Yorker in the middle 1950s, 1953, I think, resurrected the title 
and referred to boxing as the sweet science. The, the, the theme has kind of been carried forward through the years. There have been boxers like Sugar Ray Robinson and then later Sugar Ray Leonard. Why sugar when the guy up across the ring from you is pummeling your brains out? Why would you, do, would you find the courage to say, hi, sugar? <laughs> Thousands of years before Christ, there was boxing. It's found on bas-relief and uh, murals from the time of the Sumerians in the island of Crete, the Hittites of Turkey. The Romans loved it. In fact, it is from the Romans that we get the terminology of a boxing ring because they used to put the, the boxers were gladiators and they put them into the, into the round uh, ring of, the, where the, of gladiatorial combat and they boxed to the death. Uh, it was horrifically brutal. Often it was made illegal in various countries. And then in 1867, a man under the patronage of the Marcus of Queensbury, a man named Chambers, formulated the rules of boxing. And since 1867, the Marcus of Queensbury rules have pretty much guided and protected boxing from its uh, br brutal extremes. I'm sure Mr. Chambers finds it irritating that it's called the Marcus of Queensbury rules and not the Chambers rules. But the Marcus of Queensbury paid for it, and I believe in the golden rule. The guy who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> now, as we begin to move into this teaching tonight, I just want to give you one more thought on boxing as a theory. There are basically five kinds of boxers. There's what they call the outfighter. That's the true artist, the boxer. That's your Muhammad Ali type. He can knock you out. He knocked a lot of people out. But really, he was your outside razzle-dazzle man. Then there is the, the boxer puncher. That's the well-rounded fighter. He can Float like a butterfly, as Ali said, he, he, when he stings, it's not like a bee, it's like a baseball bat. And that's the current ruling champion, Vladimir Klitschko, who's not a person you want to get real close to often. The uh, third kind is the counterpuncher. That's Floyd Mayweather. That's the guy who waits for you to do something, and then he puts your lights out. The fourth guy is your power hitter, a brawler, they're called in boxing, the brawler. That's George Foreman, who spoke here. Sonny Liston, who was called the bear. And perhaps one of the most famous of all the middleweights, that's Jake LaMotta. The fifth is called a swarmer. He's your infighter. He is no art at all. He just comes at you and keeps coming at you and keeps coming at you. He has uh, this, the essential quality of the swarmer is that he has to have an iron jaw because he's going to actually let you punch until you're tired. He's just going to keep fighting you, keep chasing you around the ring and keep hitting and hitting and hitting. He wants to get in close. He is your absolute brutal hitter. That's the only heavyweight champion ever to retire undefeated. He never lost a single fight in his entire career. That's the one and only Rocky Marziano. It also is Juliar Cesar Chavez, one of the great uh, lighter weight fighters, and the inimitable Mike Tyson. Now, Mike Tyson, Iron Mike, he's your quintessential swarmer. 
He just wants to get close enough to you to do as much damage as possible, either with his fists or his teeth. He does not care. He'll take whatever he can get. There are also combinations of these. The most difficult combination for most fighters to handle is the brawler swarmer. This is a guy who just keeps coming and keeps coming. You can't, you can't knock him out. Jake LaMotta was only knocked to his knees once in his entire career. He had an iron head. And this guy just keeps coming at you. I believe that if I had to characterize Satan as a boxer, I would say certainly he is capable of all of the styles and he'll use whatever works on us. But I believe he is essentially a brawler swarmer. He doesn't care how pretty it is. He just comes at you and keeps coming at you and he wants to hit in combination. A combination fighter is the guy that really damages you. He doesn't just hit you once and back away. That's a Muhammad Ali. Now, once was enough for Ali a lot of times. But the guy that can hit you in the ribs with his left, an uppercut with his right, a right, a left cross, and then a right cross, you never have time to recover. And he just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. That is the infighter. That's the, that's the brawler swarmer. I believe Satan is a brawler swarmer. He is not a gentleman. He pays no attention to the Marcus of Queensbury rules. And he's hoping that you will. He wants to punch your lights out. It's the most difficult thing in the world. I've spent my life with young people. As a youth pastor, as a president of two different universities, I've been surrounded by young people. And the hardest thing in the world is to convince them that Satan is not playing. They, they think they can toy with Satan. He is a roaring lion. He is wanting to rip your throat out. He has, he doesn't care anything about rules, regulations, time limits, and he is indefatigable. He will come and keep coming at you no matter what until you learn how to be a counterpuncher. How do you defeat Satan's one-two punch? Tonight we'll take the first punch. On Sunday morning, the second punch. If you can beat him on the first punch, you're ahead of the game. And then you can demolish him on the second one on Sunday morning. The first thing that he wants to come at you with, one of the, one of his greatest tactics is a simple one of all, but it, it hits so many Christians. It hinders so many. It damages so many Christians walks with God. I felt deeply moved tonight to speak on this simple little truth. The, the one-two punch of Satan begins with punch number one, which is unforgiveness. Jesus makes it clear in this passage what a powerful issue unforgiveness is. He's talking about the difference between outward religion and inward spiritual reality. He starts with that and ends with this. He says, if you will forgive those who have sinned against you, if you will forgive those who have trespassed against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you your trespasses. But if you won't, he will not forgive you. That is one of the most shocking passages in the whole Bible. 
Many years ago, I was speaking in a little tiny Methodist church in this state. And we were praying with the sick, and there was a couple that came forward. And it was a small church, so everybody pretty much knew who they were and what was going on. The church was just 10 or 15 rows, 20 people in each row, just a little church. When they came up, you could kind of sense things got tense. And, and the man had come forward to ask for prayer. He had arthritis real badly in his hands. And his wife was standing behind him with his arms crossed like this. And, uh, you know, you, there's a lot. Discernment is not all spiritual. Part of it is just experiential. Open thou thine eyes. She was standing, you know, with her arms crossed and a sour look on her face. And, and I just said, look, before I pray for your husband's healing, I just want to ask you, is there anything that I need to pray with you about relative to your forgiving him, forgiving him? And she said, I've forgiven him for all that years ago. I said, I can see that. Uh, but I said, just on the outside chance that there's some little residual pocket of unforgiveness what could it be? And when she told me what it was, an incident that had happened a decade before, a terrible thing, a terrible thing that he had done, but, and, and it was awful. I'm not excusing him, but she had held it in her heart for 10 years. It had stood between them. And there is a boldness that's born of being a visitor. You say whatever you want to and go to the plane. And I said, ma'am, let me, let me just ask you a question. I said, wouldn't it be horrible? Wouldn't it be a horrible, eternal irony if your husband found the forgiveness of God and went to heaven and that other woman found the forgiveness of God and went to heaven and they were both in heaven together and you went to hell for unforgiveness? I said, wouldn't that be a horrible thing? You know, there's so much that you say in the ministry that just goes past people. It, no, I'm used to it. Uh, I was on an airplane the other day, and I saw the flight attendant, you know, giving the directions and everything, and I realized nobody was listening. And I said, honey, I just want you to know I understand how you feel right now. <laughs> but then there are those moments where you say something in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you don't even realize the power, and it hit that lady. I don't know why. It just like somebody hit her in the forehead with a meat cleaver. And she just collapsed. She began to weep. And she turned to her husband and she said, Oh, Charlie, what have I done? She said, What have I done? I've burned up a decade. What have I done? What have I done? You see, Jesus says that the, that the, one of the major blows the damage that Satan wants to do to your own salvation has to do with the, the willingness of the Christian to grant forgiveness. It deals with our own forgiveness. We think that if we withhold forgiveness from someone else, it will damage them. I, I want to tell you something. You cannot keep anybody out of heaven. You can't keep anybody from finding God's forgiveness or blessing or anointing. You can't stand between anybody and God. Your unforgiveness will not keep anybody out of heaven except you.
The unforgiveness that you harbor in your heart is actually empowering Satan's knockout blow. It not only hinders our own ability to go to heaven, it hinders everything about our lives, our health, our general well-being, our relationships begin to dry up. Have you ever heard anybody say this? Surely you have heard this. You make me sick. You make me sick. Have you ever heard that? Actually, we do make each other sick. We do make each other sick. God himself only knows how much general healing in the body of Christ and in the bodies and minds and spirits of Christians could be effectuated by nothing more than forgiveness. To simply say, I forgive you, I forgive them, I forgive him, I forgive her, I forgive, might unleash waves of such supernatural and miraculous healing that we actually don't know what it might do. In Hebrews 12 and 15, God speaks of a root of bitterness that brings up, that springs up within us and by which our whole life is defiled, corrupted, ruined, embittered by the unforgiveness. It, it, is a, it is a strenuous discipline. I don't want for one minute tonight for this sermon to sound like I'm just being dismissive or, or frivolous or whatever about forgiveness. Oh, it doesn't matter what's happened to you. You just forgive it and move on. Forgiveness, if forgiveness were not powerful, if it weren't what it means, it would be easy. It is not easy. It is one of the most strenuous of all spiritual disciplines. But there lies its power. When Satan comes at you with that, with that headshot, when he's coming straight at you to, for that knockout punch of unforgiveness, the counterpunch that stretches him like a carpet is you to extend forgiveness. He wants to shine a light on everything that's ever been done to you, everything that's ever happened to you, and make it make it blow up in front of your eyes all the time so that you will receive that inside of you in unforgiveness. Then the way that you defeat him is by hitting back, forgiving that person, forgiving those people, forgiving that event. That actually is not a defensive move. It doesn't just block Satan's punch. It actually delivers a knockout punch. You can knock him out with forgiveness. It is an act of spiritual power. But it's not easy. It's not easy. The thing is, our emotions are involved in it. We, we forgive. Forgiveness is a conscious act of your volitional will. You choose to decide and you, and you forgive. But that doesn't totally un- unattach the emotional train that's coming along behind that. You can go on and feel things long after you made the decision to forgive. And it may be a while before there's a breaking point. Corey Ten Boom, who's written as much on forgiveness as anybody ever, and my goodness, what did she have to forgive? Years in a Nazi concentration camp and her beloved sister dying there at the hand of the Nazis. She had so much to forgive, but she was struggling with feelings of forgiveness. She said, I would forgive, but the feeling wouldn't happen. I'd forgive, but the feeling. Finally, she went to her pastor, an old minister in the Netherlands, and she said, I've forgiven these people, but I can't seem to get rid of the, it just keeps coming up and keeps coming up. I know that, that every single one of us have had that at some time or another. 
where we forgive someone or think we've forgiven them, but then their name, their face comes before. And you say, oh, oh, I forgive them, I forgive them, I forgive them. And then a few days later, somebody else will mention them. Well, imagine that. But she went to her priest, uh, her old priest in, uh, in the Netherlands, and he gave them some of the greatest advice I've ever heard. He said, Corey, do you remember when you were a little girl and you used to come to church early and I'd let you ring the bell in the bell tower of the church? And you'd jump up and grab the rope and swing down on it, and the bell would begin to, to ring and ring, and then finally I would say, okay, Corey, that's enough. Let go of the rope. And you'd let go of the rope. And the, did the bell stop? She said, no, it didn't stop immediately. He said, it didn't stop immediately, but your hand was no longer on the rope. Isn't that great? When you repeat that story somewhere, I want you to say that it was original with me. Forget that preacher. He's gone. He lives in the Netherlands. He'll never know. No, what a wise old preacher that was to tell that. Some years ago, a, a, a fellow minister did something to me. I thought it damaged my career. I, he, it felt to me like a, a, an attack on me professionally. And, I, and it felt like it would hinder me. I, I took it hard. I really took it hard. But I, I kept saying, I forgive him. I forgive him. I forgive him. One night, I had a terrible dream. And I dreamed this man was killed in a horrible car crash. And it woke me up. It was so realistic. It woke me up. And I just laid there in the bed and I kind of prayed the way you do in bed. I said, Lord, wow, that was what a dream that was. Are you telling me that he's going to die in a car crash? And the thought came back in my mind just like that. No, I'm not telling you that he's going to die in a car crash. I'm telling you that secretly you wish he would. Man, that devastated me. I tumbled out of bed. I fell down beside my bed in that hotel room, and I began to pray. It was that breaking moment. I began to say, God, I forgive him. I'm forgiving my heart. I don't want him to die. I want him to live. I want him to be blessed. I want him to be prospered. Lift him up. And I really felt a breakthrough. I really felt a breakthrough. <laughs> Except a couple of weeks later, I began to think about him again. And I said, Lord, I don't, I, I don't want him to die in a car crash. Could you, could he just slam his hand in a drawer? <laughs> how, how, how bad is that? You know, that you all sit out there looking so spiritual. I began to struggle with it again. And then I, I went to a camp meeting right here in this state. Now, I wasn't preaching. I was attending, sitting way up in the cheap seats in the rafters. And, and, uh, I, and the man, pre a man preached that night on forgiveness. Some preacher, I don't remember who it was, he preached on forgiveness that night. And when he gave the altar call, he said, if there's anybody that you can't quite break through, you've tried to forgive and tried to forgive and tried to forgive, and you can't quite break through, he said, I want you to get up and come. Well, I didn't want to go down there. I was a preacher. I didn't, you know, you walk down there. It's a specific altar call. You know, everybody with bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. Okay, I'm coming. But I, I finally just said, God, I've got to get this out of my heart. And I came all the way from the way up in the balcony, came down, and this camp meeting, they had like little tables. I never saw anything like it, little 
bench tables like this and you kneel on that side and then somebody would come and kneel on the other side and pray with you. And I just knelt there and had my eyes closed and I was praying. And then uh, somebody came and knelt across from me and said, would you like me to pray with you? Uh, can I can I help you? And I said, yes. And I, I opened my eyes. You know, don't you? That, that man was kneeling right, right across. Him. I said, really, God, really? Seven billion people on the planet. Now, the point I'm making is this. You forgive as an act of your will. I forgive. I do. But it doesn't mean that the bell of, of your emotional response will immediately quit ringing. You're a human being. And that bell may ring for a while. Your responsibility is not to take hold of the rope again. And then believe God and ask God for some breakthrough moment with the power of the Holy Spirit where it breaks finally and fully and completely. Now the question is this, why don't people forgive more easily? What makes it so hard? Well, one of the reasons is, I don't know if you're in touch with this or not, but unforgiveness feels good. It feels good. There's a salacious delight to unforgiveness. Furthermore, it feeds on another one of Satan's tactics, which is self-righteousness. If I need to forgive you, it means that I am in better shape than you are. And so I hold on to that unforgiveness because it allows my sense of self-righteousness to feed on it a little bit so that Satan is now moving in closer. He's not just punching me. He's like Mike Tyson. He's biting my ear off now. He's coming in harder and harder. Secondly, there is the fear of letting the offender off. Now, I just want to say this to you. The forgiveness that you extend, now listen to this, because there's somebody here, maybe multiple people that need to hear this one thing out of everything in this little teaching tonight, you need to hear this. Because I know in a crowd this size, there are women here, and maybe, maybe men who were molested as children, there were people that have had money stolen from you. There are people that had relationships ruptured. There are people that have done terrible, terrible things to you. But you need to, if you can't hear anything else I say, will you hear this? The forgiveness that you extend to that person has nothing to do with their eternal disposition. In other words, by forgiving them, you don't let them off the hook. That is up to God. By forgiving them, you get yourself off the hook. The whole thing of forgiveness is not about them. You can't forgive, forg you can't extend forgiveness or unforgiveness. Do you think that the God of the universe has surrendered eternal judgment into your hands? You have nothing to do with their eternal disposition. This is not about them. It's about you. So the fear of letting them off the hook, you need to get through that. Then there is the fear of being a sucker. If I forgive them, maybe it will happen again. If I forgive them, they may do this again. If I forgive them, maybe I'll get hurt again. If I forgive them, I don't know if I can go through this again. If I forgive them, maybe I'll get hurt again. Now listen to me on this. This is a very practical, 
moment right here. Listen to this. The fact that you forgive someone does not mean that you have to expose yourself or other people to the danger that they represent. A relative molested you when you were a little girl. God Almighty, by His infinite grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, can help you to come to a place of forgiveness. And I thank God for that miracle. But it doesn't mean you have to let them babysit your kids. Forgiveness is inside of you, but it does not have to change your rational response to the inherent danger in the situation. Someone has been violent with you, you need to forgive. But forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to expose yourself again to that violence. In business, this is very, this is very difficult. Some people don't like this teaching, but here it is. You can forgive an employee in the same, in the same meeting where you dismiss them. I dismissed an employee one time for activity that was virtually criminal. I dismissed him. He said, Dr. Owen, can't you forgive me? I said, listen, I just want you to know I forgive you. I, I forgive you. I have nothing in my heart toward you but compassion. I pray the Lord will heal you and restore you, and I forgive you. He said, oh, thank you, thank you. You mean I'm not fired? I said, oh, no, you're fired. <laughs> you are fired, but I forgive you. I forgive you sitting here. I forgive you as you leave in your car. I just want you to know I forgive you, but you're fired. Now, that feels like a contradiction to people. But you can forgive people to whom you never again expose yourself to the risk that they represent. That's a practical thought. Forgiveness can be the most monstrously difficult thing you ever think of in your life. Cora Ten Boom again, in one of her books, she wrote about um, after World War II was over and she was released from the concentration camp. Her sister had died there and, and uh, she was preaching in a crusade, in a, a, an evangelistic campaign in a church in Germany. It was the German people that had invaded the Netherlands and put her and her sister in, in prison in the concentration camp where her sister died. And she had, was now preaching in a church in Munich. And she said when she gave the altar call for salvation, a man stepped out and came forward and she said she immediately recognized him. She immediately recognized him. She said she remembered her first night in the concentration camp when all the women had to disrobe and leave their clothes and march through and go to the showers and be have their heads shaved and the the guards, the Nazi guards who stood there and leered at them and joked about them. And she said, I recognized him the moment I saw him. And she said, I couldn't see the man walking down the aisle to receive Christ. I could only see him with that guard's uniform on and the leer of lust on his face. And he came forward. He did not recognize me. And she said, he came forward and said, young lady, I heard you say tonight, that God will forgive us of every sin we've ever committed. He said, I can believe that when you say it. Is it true? 
He said, if I can be forgiven, take my hand and pray with me to receive Christ. Forgiveness can be the hardest thing you ever do in your whole life. And she said she struggled. She said he clenched her fists at her side and struggled. Could she reach her hand out? Could she do it? Could she take the hand of that Nazi murderer and pray with him to receive Christ's forgiveness? Could she do that? Finally, she said, by the power of God, she was able to do it. I don't ever make forgiveness a small thing. And don't ever weigh out which wound is huge and which wound is small. You don't know how what a wound has affected somebody else. We tend to blow off other people's wounds. Oh, I just forgive them. That's, no, that's nothing. You don't know how they felt. You don't know how it affected them. But there are some things that are simply, absolutely unforgivable. They're unforgivable. I was speaking at a Methodist church in the Midwest some years ago. I was not preaching on forgiveness, but on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When I gave the altar call for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a great big man came. It was a Methodist church, had one of those little wooden communion rails across the front. And he came forward and hit that communion rail. It was a great big man, hit it so hard that the whole thing just shook. I thought he was going to break it over. And his wife came in, the pastor and several others. And I, I came over and knelt down beside him. I said, sir, uh, you want to receive the Holy Spirit? He said, yes. I've been trying to receive the Holy Spirit. I can't. There's a terrible, terrible block. I said, do you know what it is? He said, I know exactly what it is. He said, I can't get around it. I can't get over it. I said, tell me about it. He said, I'm the deputy sheriff in this county. He said, two years ago, I responded to an emergency call of shooting in a bar downtown. So when I went there, he said, a man with a sawed-off shotgun had opened up about two feet away from a young woman and cut her in half. Said she lay face down on the floor of that bar said, I disarmed him and cuffed him. And he said, when I turned the victim over, it was my daughter. He said, I, I went for my service revolver. He said, the other officers had to restrain me. He said, I, I plotted every day to kill him. I, I would go behind the jail and walk up and down in the alley behind the jail. And he said, I, I knew where he was. I could reach him. He said, I want to kill him. I still want to kill him. He said, I can't receive the Holy Spirit because that man is standing between me and the Holy Ghost. We prayed that night. I'll never forget it. As long as I live, the pastor came and knelt across the communion rail from him. And I said, sir, I want you to imagine that your daughter's murderer is kneeling across the communion rail from you. And Jesus is saying, my body and blood are on this rail. If you will reach across and forgive him, I'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. I've never seen anything like it. It was supernatural. His body shook. His whole body shook. It looked like he had hold of a, of a hot wire as he reached across. And when he touched the pastor's head, he cried out. He said, I, I forgive you. I forgive you. And he was instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. Powerful. Powerful. The next night, we came to the service, and I, I looked, and that big deputy sheriff and his wife weren't there. I turned to the pastor and I said, this is so disappointing to me. I said, I've seen this in the ministry so many times. Somebody has some big spiritual moment with God and the next night they don't even show up. He said, calm down, Rutland. He said, it's not what you think. He said, that man and his wife, they've driven to the state penitentiary to meet the murderer. 
They've gone to meet their daughter's murderer. And they have gone to tell him that they forgive him and see if they can lead him to Christ. I kept in touch with that man for years. And he told me that four times a year, every quarter, he went to visit his daughter's murderer and established a relationship for years with that man. The great thing is he was free. Now, there are some things that are unforgivable. There are some people in this room tonight to whom and against whom unforgivable things have happened. It's unforgivable to molest a child. That's a horrible, horrible thing. It's it's unforgivable to kill somebody. It's unforgivable to betray somebody. It's unforgivable. There are all kinds of unforgivable wounds represented right in this room or those people that are watching on the internet. Unforgivable things. Do you know what's the most unforgivable sin of all? It's called deicide. Do you know what it means? Fratricide is to kill your brother. Patricide is to kill one of your parents. Homicide is to kill another human being. Deicide is to kill God. That's the most unforgivable sin. The most monstrous evil of all is deicide. And as the deity himself hung suspended between heaven and earth, he cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't understand the depth of depravity that's represented to kill a God, to kill the only true God, to kill the God who is dying for them. That level of forgiving of the unforgivable flows down from the cross into us when we are willing to receive it. And by our act of will to forgive, it flows out through us and forgiveness becomes incarnational. As Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was being stoned to death, it says that he looked up into heaven and cried out, Father, don't, don't hold this against them. Don't hold this against them. And then he died. Don't you see? Straight from the cross, straight into the moment of that unforgivable sin of stoning a man to death just because he loved Jesus. And through him flowed that power of forgiveness. Now, how do I actually do it? How do I actually step up to the thing and forgive? It's so simple that people keep looking for a more complicated recipe and it stands in their way. It's so simple that I... I even find myself hesitating to teach you. How do you forgive? You say, I forgive. Father, I forgive that person who did that to me. Father, I forgive my husband. Father, I forgive my wife. Father, I forgive my teenager for making me crazy. Father, I forgive my parents. Father, I forgive that traffic cop. A practice of forgiveness, a flow of forgiveness. If you drive on I-85 or any American highway, you need to flow in forgiveness. God, that man that just cut me off. Oh, God. He's got Michigan license plates on. God, I forgive him. Forgiveness is a simple act, a volitional act of your will. I forgive. Take it another step. 
God, I'm asking you. I have no control over you. I can't tell you what to do, but I'm asking you for you to forgive them as well. I forgive them, and I ask you to forgive them. Now, when to forgive? The answer is just as simple. The sooner, the better. The faster you can get over the hurdle, the faster you can do it, the faster you can dive into forgiveness, the quicker you can begin to be healed and be free. Um, Remember, forgiveness is not about healing the other person. If There are people all the time that say, I'm ready to forgive. You ever hear this? I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to forgive. As soon as they'll come to me and apologize, I'll forgive them just like that. If you were, you know, one of the most overrated events in all human relationships, it's closure. There's almost nothing in life for which you will get any real closure. The, don't wait on the apology. When they come to you, if they should ever come to you, by the way, if you get mm, five really genuine apologies in your whole life, you're really good. But if that person ever comes to you and says, I'm sorry, will you ever forgive me? You have the luxurious moment of saying, oh, my friend, I forgave you for that years ago. I wasn't waiting on you to apologize. I forgive you. I'm glad you've apologized because it's good for you. But I forgave you years ago because it was good for me. I don't want to live my life strapped to some sinner. I forgive now. When to forgive? Now. Don't wait for that person to do anything. Secondly, don't extend forgiveness to them verbally until they ask. Can you hear me on this? Christians are absolutely the worst about this. Go to somebody and say, I just want you to know I forgive you. (laughs) Really? Now they're thinking, I wonder, what did I do? That's the way to keep people awake at night. <laughs> Remember what I said, forgiveness. Jesus launches into the teaching on prayer and forgiveness by talking first about private intercessory prayer. The same is true of forgiveness. You forgive in your heart. You tell God about it and you extend forgiveness from your spirit. But you don't go to people and say, I just want you to know, I know you've been a jerk and a horrible person, and I've, I've been watching you for years, and you've just done one stupid, sinful thing after another. I just want you to know I forgive you. That's healing, isn't it? Doesn't that help? When to forgive? I, I, I'd like to make a suggestion. Satan is coming at you. You can see that he's a brawler. He, he's a, he's a mauler. He's not going to stand on the other side of the ring and throw leisurely little jabs at you. He, he's Mike Tyson on amphetamines. <laughs> he's coming at you. He wants to punch your light out. He wants to break your ribs. He wants to cave your liver in. He wants to bite your ear off. <laughs> and he's coming at you and he's laughing and snarling. Why would you wait to knock him down? Why would you leave even this worship service without the counterpunch that'll stretch Satan like a carpet? And that's to simply say, Father, forgive them. They don't understand me or life or what they're doing. 
or sin or righteousness are you. They're completely blind and ignorant. Father, forgive them. And I forgive them in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the counterpunch. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.